So I'm going to do a review of Quentin Tarantino's ninth film, I think, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which joins the ranks of, it's almost like there's, I think there was two Sergio Leone, Once Upon a Time in the West, which I said was probably my favourite film of all time, and America, which was another masterpiece. And the only dud one was, ironically, uh, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, featuring Brad Pitt, I believe. Now, this time around, this is one of the most mysterious films of the year. Pretty much everyone goes into this not knowing what it's about. It's almost like there's this veil over it where people can't quite work out what this film's about. I mean, when it was... His last film, The Hateful Eight, was divisive as well, but I absolutely loved it. But it was very easy to say, you know, it's a group of... um, near the wells arriving in a spot and um you know following a logical linear story as to their interactions and there wasn't a lot of depth behind it this time around it's a far harder thing to define what this movie is about so the main stars are virtually on screen the entire film so we get um if you don't know which you probably do it's set at the very end of the 60s in 1968 and apart from Brad and Leo, virtually everyone in the film is is either an actual real person who existed then and was involved in some way to the story, or they're a, a, a composite of somebody that existed then. Um, but the Brad and Leo characters are, are probably the only two prominent people in the whole movie that are completely invented. And Brad is a West, sorry, uh, Leo's a Western star from the 1950s, sort of like Clint Eastwood was, and like a lot of others were in shows like Rawhide and, and so on. And he's coming to terms with the counterculture and its impact on the way that art's perceived, and things are a lot more sort of progressive and challenging and arty and hip. And he's sort of dealing with the consequences that he's old and he's, he's, he's sort of like approaching middle age, was really famous once, but does the world have a place for him? Does Hollywood have a place for him? It's all he's ever known. And he spends his days either getting acting jobs like small, smaller roles or touring around with his best friend Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt plays uh, a stuntman that's in virtually the same place as uh, Leo's character. He was... Leo's stunt double in all the westerns but now the work's drying up and he's a bit older uh, he too is, is sort of struggling on the margins um, Leo's still a big star-ish and he lives next door to Roman Polanski who is kind of the embodiment of the way the culture's shifted to being this far more challenging and art house world than he's used to and Roman Polanski lives there with Sharon Tate, his wife and the whole movie is wrapped up in the Manson murders. Um, and going into the cinema, you probably, that's the biggest thing hanging over the movie, is how will that play out in the course of the movie? Well, I'm not telling you. Um, the other main person doesn't really have any involvement with anyone else. She's uh, Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate. Um, Tarantino said that he didn't want her in the story. Uh, he didn't want to make her, her character have have a storyline. He wanted to spend the day with her because she's been defined by her brutal and bloody murder ever since and virtually nothing ever gets spoken about what kind of person she was her or her life outside of the night it ended. 
Um, and he was very sort of like, this is what I want I want us to spend time with Sharon Tate. So it's split between the three main characters. Brad and Leo are often in scenes on their own or with other people than each other. So they all three occupy, I reckon, around a third of the movie each. Some, probably half that time, Brad and Leo are together and half the time they're off on their own little adventures. Margot is often by herself, often wordless, and that drew some ire from people saying that he's sexist. It seems like um, Tarantino in the post-Me Too era is kind of like a a massive target for journalists, because I've seen so many journalists trying to hang him for sexism in his movies, despite the fact that he's one of the only major male directors of the last 20 years to have consistently written, or near 30 years now, consistently written really strong roles for women. Certainly, even as far back as Pulp Fiction, but mainly like Jackie Brown was a... Like, how many directors are... Hang, how many, like, Christopher Nolan's or um, any of the... Like, Paul Thomas Anderson's or whatever are hanging an entire movie on a, a middle-aged African-American woman. You know, he he was he and again with uh, Inglorious Bastards, probably the main character was uh, the girl in it, uh, who grows up and um, becomes sort of like a, a, a Jewish Nazi hunter. Um, and he's always he's most often, apart from like the Hateful Eight, didn't really have much more than Jennifer Jason Lee in it. Um, but he's always written really strong women characters, but they're going after him now because they kind kind of sense that they don't want to like him. He's too bro-centric. He's too violent in his film. I mean, look at Kill Bill. I mean, that was um, virtually women throughout the entire both movies. Um, but they can't quite land any punches on him. And I think they went after this, knowing about the Sharon Tate murders, and were looking at ways to chip away at his misogyny. But they can't really find it. Um, so anyway, this whole film doesn't have a linear story, and I think that's the reason it's been so divisive with audiences. Some people have just got washed over by the film and enwrapped in its aura. And others have gone, well, where's the story? There's nothing happening. And it is, I think it's his most art house film because it just doesn't have a real linear story. We all know where the movie's going and we know where it's going to end. And you know that walking in. But everything else is, it's very existential. We spend time with Leo as he's sort of um, dealing with the fact that he might not be a leading man, he may not have any more chances, and what to do with his life now, and what that means, because he clearly burns for acting, and being a celebrity and everything else, he he absolutely adores it. But there's no space for him in the world. And Brad's character kind of has a more peripheral storyline to it, in that he has chance encounters with the people that are in the Manson family. He even visits their ranch purely by accident. Um, he picks up a, one of the... He keeps driving past this beautiful but underage girl and uh, he, he's always going in the wrong direction. But he ends up picking her up and taking her to the ranch um, where the, the Manson family were hanging out. Um, so that sort of kind of involves them, but you won't know which way the story is going to go either because it's quite a surprise, um, which is probably one of the other reasons why people have been keeping it quiet. And the fact that Margot Robbie exists in a dream world where you're just focused on how unattainably, ridiculously beautiful she is while she goes around doing things like going to see her own film in the cinema and stuff like that and hanging around at home as well with other people who were tragically killed that night. 
And other than the invented characters of Brad and Leo, it, it most of the characters that are mentioned are real, including the Manson family members that were mentioned. Um, so there's not a lot in the way of stories to hang this movie on to tell you about how it progresses because it's just vignettes and um, they are tied together. It's not random vignettes. They are. They do have some sort of overflow into each other and they do have some cumulative overflow. It's just not, you know, they're going to rob a bank and this is what happened. It's mainly hanging out and existing in these very long takes with a lot of really strong acting. Um, so I'll go straight into what did I think about this film. It's been a divisive film, and I think a lot of Tarantino's films have been. I mean, even as far back as Jackie Brown, people were a little bit miffed about how low-key it was. And some have said in the same way this film is similar, but I don't think so at all. And Kill Bill Volume 2, which is arguably my favourite of his films, that got a lot more um, negative or, or ecstatic positive reviews then he got him to that stage because it was a very wordy film. After Kill Bill 1 was so cartoonish and violent and action-packed, this was a much more sort of cerebral, low-key film to finish on. And I really loved it. And Hateful Eight as well. I thought that was, you know, people say he's lost it every time he makes a film. I thought Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained were misfires in a way. Um, I think arguably his worst film is Inglorious Bastards in that it just is a bit of a mess. It doesn't really hang together. I thought Django Unchained was a masterpiece right up until the bit where Jamie Foxx took over and the last half hour absolutely destroyed what was a brilliant film. But I think The Hateful Eight and this are probably his two strongest films in a row since Kill Bill. Um, I thought The Hateful Eight was three hours in a room with a group of people and it could have been held on the stage without changing anything and yet it wasn't boring at all um i thought that was really indicative of how strong his writing was but there was no further meaning behind anything that happened this time around i think i think it's it's so difficult to judge a film that you feel much more than you can sort of cognitively say why you enjoyed it and i think my bottom line here is how much do I think about a film once I've left a cinema? I might have really enjoyed it while it was going on, but is it occupying me in any ways after I left the cinema? And I'd say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood occupied me more than any film I've seen in recent years that I can think of. I spent the whole night thinking about it, um, what it meant, what individual bits were like, um, and also uh, studying all of the different elements because it's the most meta film I've ever seen. I mean, you've got, with two of the main characters, you've got actors acting, acting, in, in and even watching themselves on the screen. Like The most meta bit in it is probably when um, Margot Robbie goes to watch her own film in the cinema. So she's an actor playing an actress, watching herself as an actress on the screen, um, which is quite wonderful. And these things crop up all the time, and there's lots and lots of intrigue into the way it happened and why and what things mean. For instance, the, the relationship between Leo and Brad as the actor and stuntman was actually Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds in real life. Hal Needham was the stunt double for Burt Reynolds and his best friend. And he ended up directing Smoking the Bandit and actually crossing over uh, by the end of the 70s into actually making films, which was pretty impressive and a, and a nice end. And this film was due to have Burt Reynolds in the film and in a scene where... Brad Pitt's character talks to him so that would have been really really nice 
to have that Hal Needham character talking to actually Burt Reynolds. Um, and there's lots and lots of layers to the intrigue. Like you see um, Tim Oliphant leave the set of a, fil- a TV show that they, they film in the course of the film that's actually a real TV show. And the actor that he's portraying in it actually had a horrific motorcycle accident leaving the set. So there's just every few minutes there's something that you can look up and, and refer back to. But mostly I, I just really enjoyed being in the moment with the film. There was a film that came out called Inherent Vice a few years back. And it got Paul Thomas Anderson's worst reviews. And I didn't give it a very good review, but I re-reviewed it on watching it a second time. And the reason was it was a detective story, but the story itself was pretty naff. And watching it focused on the story, like a lot of people are doing with this film, you're going to come away and say the story's naff. But once I went back and watched it again and I knew what had happened, I could just enjoy the individual scenes. This might Brad Pitt is excellent in this film. He really is good. He strikes a, a very strange note. And one of the many interesting things is all the three main characters in this are shown to be really good people. But there's a spectre hanging over Brad, which is that he may or may not have murdered his wife. And um, a lot of people think that he has murdered his wife. And he's also shown to be physically very, very strong. The famous scene is where he fights Bruce Lee in this film, which got a lot of attention. How dare you portray Bruce Lee like this? But he's still absolutely excellent. Margot Robbie is very good as Sharon Tate, but doesn't. She's not given any acting to do, so she, we basically exist with her. But there's a lovely scene in the, where she watches her own film, oh, in the cinema, and and, and that whole f- sequence. I love how this is his least cynical film. It's his warmest and nicest film. They could have made her going to a cinema and saying who she was to the people working there and then blagging a free ticket to her own film, and then really enjoying watching herself. They could have made that so cynical. There's not one bit of you that thinks that she's being cynical. She just seems absolutely ecstatically blown away that she's walking past the cinema with herself on the poster outside, and she spends the film with this look of delight on her face every time the audience laughs or cheers when she's on screen. It's just completely uncynical and she just comes across as somebody that's in love with the idea of making films and and people enjoying her work. But top of the pile for me is um, this might be my favourite character and performance of Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, I've reversed my opinion about The Revenant. I don't think it was that great in retrospect. And I also think that he's done many performances in recent years. Wolf of Wall Street... Even the Gatsby one, that were more deserving of an Oscar than than that film was. Um, This time around, he plays such a beautifully realised character. He's a really good guy. So again, the characters on screen are only shown to be really decent human beings when it comes down to it. Even Brad's role, who's a lot edgier, he still does things that are decent throughout the course of the film, like checking on his old friend to see if he's being... um, misled by the Manson family and stuff like that they're all shown to be good people but Leo is re- actually a really nice person and he's he's obviously not looking after himself he's a massive alcoholic and he's, he struggles with personal demons but I think it's my it's 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 such a, a rich character and his performance in it it's got my favorite like there's four scenes in a row 
that all that all bleed into each other. Where he goes on set to the Lancer TV show where he's going to play a villain, and he has a meeting with this precocious child actress who's very standoffish toward him at first and ends up asking him what his cowboy book is about. And he says, oh, it's about this cowboy, you know, and he, he's getting on in life and he gets injured and he can't do this. And he, as, as he's telling her, he realises he's just talking about his life and starts crying. And they bond over that. And then he does an actual film where he's, he's shooting a scene as the villain, talking to another of the actors, a Tim Oliphant character, and he does a, a pretty, really good job, actually, as, as the character, but he fluffs some lines. And after that, he goes and has, uh, in the third scene, has a mental breakdown in the trailer. And the only time he's nasty in the film is to himself, usually by himself. Like, he tears himself to pieces. He he's just hates himself. And he says, you know, you just give up. Why are you even here? You're wasting everyone's time. He's smashing stuff up. He then comes back and gives another performance as a character in the TV show, which is absolutely magnificent, absolutely breathtaking, Shakespearean in power. And at the end of it, the director comes over and just says, you know, that's amazing, you're a brilliant actor and so on. And then the little girl comes over and says, you know, I think that's the best acting I've seen from anyone in my whole life. And he's just welling up with tears. And I think that's some of the best acting that DiCaprio's done. And the level of control that he has to not only be able to act this character so well, but then to have this character acting a little bit naff and fluffing things, and then acting as a, another character brilliantly. The level of control he's got as an actor is, is just amazing. And I thought he was, a, I, I would say, my favourite, initially my favourite Leo performance in character. So it's 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 hard. It it reminds me in a way of a film by Peter Bogdanovich, which ironically I gave the same score to that I'm going to give to this, which was a film that came out um, in the early 70s, and it was a, it was like based on a Raymond Chandler detective novel, but instead of following the story, it sort of followed the sidelines. Not much happens in it until the very end. It's all. Him existing in L.A. at the start of the 70s, and it got trashed on release, but it's now regarded as a classic. And I can see this with this film, because it's so much more about existing on the margins and following people through their day-to-day lives than it is about a story, which is difficult for people to get their heads around. I'm very impressed by um, Quentin Tarantino doing this. I think it's his most art house, his most human, his warmest, and his most European film. And to get a $100 million budget with Leo and Brad on board and actually turn what is a very existential movie with virtually no story into a $250 million at the box office is quite impressive. Um, I saw a stat that was... Um, I think one reason this film's been really successful at the box office is people saw that poster with Brad and Leo and they want to see Brad and Leo hang out in a film. I do. And I think that sold a lot of tickets, but... Apparently, something like 7% of people go to see the average film based on the director. And with Tarantino's films, 47% of people go because of him. Um, So I absolutely love this film. I can't fault it much. The only thing that um, stuck out for me is is it it maintains a dreamlike quality for two-thirds of the runtime. 
and then uh, Kurt Russell props up as uh, doing a narration uh, as another aside to how meta this film is and how much juicy stuff is under the hood there's a scene where Kurt Russell's wife is the the wardrobe head the manager of wardrobe on set and she comes out and berates Brad Pitt's character when he's having a fight with Bruce Lee but in real life she's a stunt coordinator of the whole film in real life she's a stunt coordinator and she was the stunt stand-in for Uma Thurman in the Kill Bill movies that's how sort of continually eating itself every part of this film is um I, 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 I thought about this film so much when I came out of the cinema and to me, that's the, like I said, when Kurt Russell starts doing his narration, it breaks, it's almost like the fall falls broken. And I did worry about that, and I do think that the, t- there was too much narration, because um, a lot of what was happening we could see on screen very, very plainly. So I was a bit curious about that, and whether that had meant that the film wouldn't be able to return to itself. But it doesn't return to itself. It return it, when it comes back into being normal narrative free mode. It's actually in the end session of the movie, and it's a much darker place, and it's a very different sort of vibe. It is a comedy, though, and even the darkness is is often very comedically done. Um, so people have complained about the end, but I thought the end was actually pretty decent. I really liked it, and it's almost leaves you on a spectral note as well. But the build up towards the end is. It's pretty gratifying, although stupid. The thing, this film to me is, people are saying it's his love letter to Hollywood. For me, it's him imagining something so horrible and putting in, inserting himself in there to change it, to, to, you know, what if all this horror didn't happen? What if, you know, the golden age of Hollywood never left and these heroes were still there and so on? And, and that's what I get from the film. I can't really go into that too much further, uh, which I realised while I was talking about it. So for me, this has been definitely my favourite film I've seen this year. And <clears throat> I can understand why people wouldn't like it. And I'd love to see it again to see how much it sticks. But given that the other film I mentioned, Inherit Vice, didn't stick the first time I saw it, and this has got far less story far less satisfying story because it's just Viginettes but it did for me stick the first time and I, I really enjoyed spending time with the characters and it's an oddball film but I found it rich really rich and I, I'm very interested that Tarantino I don't think has made a film quite like it so Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for me is going to get a nine and a half out of ten I might revise that when I see it again and think that I just got swept up in the moment but I haven't given virtually any films 9.5 out of 10. The last one was The Big Sleep, which was my film of last year or the year before. And that's the last time I can remember giving 9.5 out of 10 to, and I've probably only given it to about five films over the whole time I've been doing this show. Cloud Atlas, which was another very unloved film. But um, both that and The Big Sleep I gave 9.5 out of 10, and they were my favourite films of those respective years. So... For me, a massive success for Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Not for everyone, very unusual, but I think a masterpiece. And uh, 